spirits of God, and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love being your children. Those of us that know you, we really want a supernatural work of your spirit in our lives today. We want to know you more. We want to explore who you are more. We thank you, Lord, that you revealed so many amazing things in your word. We thank you that your word is truth, not merely containing truth, but it is truth. Lord, and we want to be further led into the truth today. We thank you that there's so many voices that you work against through your word in our lives. Our own voices, our own thoughts, other voices that are in this world, you effectively work against those voices as you renew our minds. We're grateful that we get to have a renewed mind. Help us, Father, to grow in our thoughts and our motivations. Help us to grow in maturity and in love towards one another. We pray that we would continue to grow closer together as a family, but also be growing in reaching out, Lord, to those that don't know you yet. So we commit this time to you. We ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, for some of us, this is a very familiar passage. We went through the Revelation verse by verse. Um, I don't know when it was. If, if it's, I'm sure it was a year and a half, two years, somewhere. I'm not, I'm not sure. But you may remember going through these different letters to the seven churches. You may not remember going through. And this may be the first time you've ever even opened the Revelation and you're in, intimidated by it. Like, wow, well, like... What am I going to learn here if I go in Revelation? Isn't it hopelessly, uh, un, un, you know, written to where I can't understand it? You know, it's cryptic and you have to have the code. There's so many codes out there, Bible codes and, you know, all these things. And we can't even obey what it's on the surface of the scripture to say nothing of hidden codes. So, but these letters here are, are so valuable to us because it reveals to us that the Lord Jesus is paying attention to, to his church, his churches. He, he walks in the midst of the churches, and he has opinions about his church, and we want what he wants uh, in related to his instruction in our lives. So there were these seven historical churches. One of them was Sardis. There's many lessons to learn from these churches. Sardis is no different. Um, but what we will see today is the danger of being a part of a dead church, we will see what it means to be dead and how to ensure it doesn't happen to each one of us because the church constitutes individuals. That's who it is. That's who we, we are the church. So the parts make up the larger whole or the parts make up the aggregate. Uh, and so it's important for us to know what it, that we're not dead and we're not, we're being fruitful and all those things. And so 
I just want to focus on this morning of the danger of being mistakenly dead. (laughs) Uh, Because as we'll see as we go through here, uh, the Church of Sardis were the last to know. Uh, And it's very important for us to understand about our own lives, about our fruitfulness and all of that. And sometimes we could be the last to know about our own personal walk in certain areas. And God raises up people, his word, the Holy Spirit, um, people use spiritual gifts, all these different th- means by which can break through self-deception, because all of us can be engaged in self-deception. That's why it's so important when God says, you know, exhort one another daily, especially as you see the day approaching. It's something that we need to do, be willing to exhort one another and be able to receive exhortation. So notice verse 1, Jesus addresses the leader of the church there. He says in verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, again, a lot of the imagery in the book of Revelation, as we saw when we went through it, I had mentioned that, and what's not originals, I've heard it somewhere, but, you know, the Revelation is like the, the kind of the border of a puzzle, and then you get the pieces from the Old Testament. And if you don't know where to find the pieces, you're going to have an incomplete picture. And some people believe that it possibly could have been because of persecution that the Apostle John was led to write in this way where he uses imagery from the Old Testament. It's because the Romans who were persecuting wouldn't know any of that, wouldn't understand it, wouldn't understand what he was saying. But the Old Testament believers, or the believers who are familiar with the Old Testament, would understand exactly what he was saying from Daniel and other books in the Old Testament. But related to the stars and, you know, this, these um, things, these, these things that he reveals in, in this scripture related to this imagery, he reveals what that is. He's, he, he says the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he first addresses this angel of the church of Sardis. And, I, and that word means messenger. And I believe that is the head leader head elder, whatever, of the churches that he's speaking to. Some of the grammar, uh, when you study it, will definitely point to the fact that he's speaking sometimes directly just to the angel, and that's it. And that they're supposed to, you know, receive that, but also be able to pass that on to others that are in, in the church. And so I don't believe that God has an angelic being over every church, and especially when he talks about them in these, in these letters of the seven churches, some of them be guilty of, of things that angels aren't guilty of. So um, I believe it means messenger. He's writing to the leader of the church there. And, and notice how he identifies himself with the seven spirits of God. He's, it, he says, these things is he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he's saying something about himself. And as we saw when we went through the Revelation or when you read it, he begins every one of these letters with something about himself. And you can study it on your own, but there's a lot of connection between their issues or even their things that he's commending them for and how he identifies himself as who he is. And he has a different way of expressing that in each one of these letters to the seven churches. So the seven spirits, I mean, that, some people interpret that as the sevenfold, sevenfold manifestation of the spirit or the sevenfold spirit or... It's seven is the order is the number of perfection in scripture. So the fullness of who God is, that's who he is. And and the seven stars, he defines that for us. You can write this in your margin in chapter one, verse twenty, 
where he identifies the stars as the seven angels, or the people to whom he writes each one of these letters. So these angels that he's writing to, these, these men, I believe, these messengers of, for, on his behalf to the church, uh, those are the, the stars. And we're told in, in chapter 1, verse 20, that he holds them in the palm of his hand. So he holds them in the palm of his hand, which is, provides great comfort for, for those people. And he has them, which also means he has them under his control. Or he wants to, at least. That's his desire. And that brings a comfort to the churches. Now, he says this assessment in the rest of verse 1. He says, I know your works that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And, And as people have spoken about in the past and it's been written about, there's one word that would, that would probably encapsulate the Church of Sardis pretty well, and that's activity. Uh, they were very, very active. They were very busy. Another word, a synonym for that would be busyness. And I don't know what that would look like in their day. None of us can, because we're divorced from that culture. But we can know what it could look like in our day, of what it would mean to have activity, a lots of activity. So it tells us that just because there's activity doesn't mean there's necessarily life going on. That's the lesson, the, the, the abbreviated lesson there. And so it could look like, in our day, it could look like having services every night of the week, something going on every night of the week, lots of people involved in, in the church. It can, um, you know, you have something for every age group, you know, you have something for the youth and the young adults, older adults, you're... You have things for age groups for people that aren't even born yet. You know, you're thinking about having a baby. You have a group for you. Or, you know, the centurions. Not centurions. That would be wrong. The, how do you say it? The centurions? I don't know. But the hundred-year-olds. You know, I mean, maybe in some cultures, maybe there's some parts of the world where they, where they live a long time. Just a lot of people live a long time. You know, maybe they have groups there where it's the, the hundred-plus the hundred group you know the 105 year olds are hanging out with 104 year olds and you know they're fellowshipping and all that uh you know sometimes some of us feel like we're that old or whatever you know midlife crisis group you know if you're in midlife crisis we have a group for you i don't know break former breakdancing recovery group i don't know or churches that have to hear about breakdancing recovery group um you know just the fact that it's just everything's happening, going on, things are happening, things are going, and all of that. And that can actually mean good things. We know that. That could actually, you could have a church that's full of life, that's um, alive, that's being led by the Spirit, all these things, and, and there's lots of activity, and that's wonderful. But just because we see that doesn't mean that that's what's happening, because Jesus says here that you have a name. That means you have a reputation. You have a name that you are alive but you are dead. Anybody in the church of Sardis would have never come to the conclusion, in fact, if you would have told them you're dead, they probably would have laughed in your face. But that wasn't the case. It's exactly what Jesus says, that it's dead. So, what, do, you know, what opinion matters? Whose opinion really matters when we think about it? Our own opinion? Other people's opinion? What really matters is what Jesus' opinion is of us. Because remember, we are the church. It's our individual lives, but also we're interconnected. We're part of a larger whole that's emphasized in Scripture, that we're part of a larger whole primarily. 
who are secondarily individual members. Way more, way more discussion in the scriptures, way more scriptures for the fact that we're a larger whole, we're a family, we're all those things. That's a struggle for us in our culture because we're so individualistic in our culture. In other cultures, that's not a, that's not a struggle because they have a family-oriented culture and a group-oriented culture. So it's no big deal for them to read in the scriptures that we're a larger whole. For us, we have to work at it because we're so individualistic. So this is what really matters, what Jesus' assessment is of the church and what he thinks. And he said, and it's a good reminder for us to hear, maybe you've never heard this before, but it's Jesus' church. It's his church. He said he would build it. Now, he wants us to not get in the way of that. He wants us to not, he doesn't need our help. He wants to participate, but he doesn't need us, need us. Kind of like when you're working at home when your kids are little and you want them to help you. It's not because they're the most qualified people in the neighborhood. It's because you love them and you want them to be with you and you want them to be, um, you know, being a part of what you're doing. So he said he would build it. I've told you many times how much mail I get. I, I get more Facebook advertisements now than ever with all the secrets to, you know, making making it, you know, busting at the seams and all these things. And I'm not saying there aren't valuable things in those, those, those resources. I'm sure they're very practical, very realistic things. But I, you know, I oversee the Manteca Ministerial Association, and I talk to other pastors. I talk to other pastors all over the place and from different places, and I appreciate the diversity and all of that. And sometimes I hear things like it. They, I get the sense that they may be maybe inadvertently thinking it's on their shoulders, and I feel bad for them. Because it's not on their shoulders. It's the Lord Jesus' church. And, and he's the one that's holding it together. He's the one that's mo- bringing the motivation. He's the one that's adding to it, saving people, all those things. But we have to be in tune with what he wants to do. So if you have the reputation that you're alive, but Jesus said you're dead, what does he tell us to do? Look at verses 2 and 3. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So obviously he's talking about some kind of judgment and discipline and all those things in verse 3. But he says there in those two verses, he says basically there's five verbs it, you know, there's be watchful, strengthen, remember, hold fast, and repent. So the first thing he says is to be watchful. We don't really use that vernacular in our culture. Be watchful. You know, it's really pay attention, tune in, wake up. That's the, probably the best set of words. Wake up. Get an accurate assessment of what's happening in your life, through your life. Get an accurate assessment of the church how you're a part of the church, what you're doing in the church, why you're doing what you're doing in the church, what's motivating you, all those things. It's all part of kind of doing inventory with your life and ministry and look at, from his perspective, how Jesus defines life and something that's alive and being led by him. How does he define those things and what in your life and in my life and in the church's life is ready is dead and is ready to die 
I remember in the school of ministry, when I went to the school of ministry in Orange County, I had the blessing of having great teachers and Pastor Chuck and everything, and we had to study the cycles of church, basically how a church functions, and we had to study, um, and basically I was told that every church at some level, at some point, will die, and it really offended me. Like, what are you talking about? If we do all the things we're supposed to be doing, then we're going to live forever. This church is going to go on forever, and, and, and every church can, can do that. And he, they weren't saying that that wasn't possible. And there are church buildings that have been around for hundreds of years, and there's people meeting in them and all that. But the, you can have a whole different church happen within an existing building. You know, you can have a whole new work of the Spirit. You can have a whole new thing, a whole new group. It's just like having a company that basically get, reorganizes itself and resets itself or whatever, and you can have a brand new company, but yet you're still under the name of the old company, that kind of thing. And so we had to learn about, these things are very valuable to me, to learn about what, mean, what it means to be dying, what, what's it, what it means to be a dead church, what are the signs that you're becoming dead, and all these things. And one of the things, a few of the things that we learned was a, a dying church becomes increasingly inward, a dying church doesn't care or, or has a decreasing concern for the lost. There is less and less being led by the Spirit. They're less concerned about the culture and how to reach the culture. They're focused more and more on what, what blesses them and what they like and what they're comfortable with. And then one of the things I learned is that they don't allow outside people when they come in to change them. And what do I mean by that? Change them into believing in biblical things, unbiblical philosophy of ministry? No, I don't mean that at all. But to recognize who's coming, recognize how they're adding to the church, what they're adding, what they're bringing, what are their gifts, um, how are they sensitive to the things that we're doing, um, how, are, how are the unbelievers that are coming in, how are they perceiving us in a, in a way that makes a difference related to their, how they can receive the gospel, those kinds of things. And, you know, every church is struggling one way or the other in, in, in any of these areas and improving or, or, or staying the same or getting worse. And so, but if you look in Scripture, you just see, look, what's the Christian life look like? The Christian life is not inward. The Christian life does, is supposed to care about the gospel. It's supposed to be led by the Spirit. It's supposed to be sensitive to how to reach the culture. It is supposed to be not supremely concerned about what's comfortable and what I like. And we are also individually supposed to be sensitive to people's needs that we're around and who we're trying to meet that we're trying to care for, we're trying to preach the gospel to, how we can serve them, how we can help them. So really, a, a dead church or a, grow, a church that's going the direction of dying is no different than a person, a Christian, an individual that's going that direction of not growing and going the wrong direction. So it, 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 and related to ministry, it can, we, can, we can serve and start out really well. And he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about Sardis. There's even a few that have not defiled their garments, even in Sardis and all that. And I believe Sardis started out really well. 
I believe that Sardis was dependent upon the Lord and spirit-led and all these things. But then things changed over time. And, and what that can look like practically in our lives is that we can, let's say, I'll just use this example of, of, a, of a greeter, someone that's greeting people or serving hospitality. Some of us think that that's super easy. But you have to recognize that it may not have always been easy for us, for one, but for a lot of people, that's a massive, huge step of faith to be the person that people come in contact with, knowing that people spend months thinking about coming into a place like this, they get up their nerve, and then we're going to be the first ones that they meet or encounter and all of that, and, the, and, and how important that is to represent the Lord well, and, you know, they're, they're making sure they have their devotions before in the morning, and they're praying, and they're praying... Th- throughout the time that they're greeting people and they're asking the Lord, how can I show your love? And they're wanting the, the love of Christ to come out of their lives. And, you know, and, and people sense that. It makes a difference. Do you think Jesus would want people to be greeting? Who knows what needs they're coming with, whether it be salvation or other things or whatever. We have no idea what they're bringing to the room, what their, what their past has been, what their future is, or their present is, what's in their future. All, God knows all of those things and needs somebody that is totally dependent upon him and, and, and having him flow through him, that person. But then you get good at it. Time goes by, second, second Sunday, third Sunday, fourth Sunday, fifth Sunday. Not only are you thinking, hey, I need a break. <laughs> uh, where's the other people that can help me with this? But also, it's like, you, you know, after a while, a few months go by, years maybe, there's no dependency on the Lord anymore. No dependency on, and not prayed up, not asking the Lord, how do you want me to greet this person? Or is there anything you want me to say? You know, any of these types of sensitivities of being led in the moment. Take the example of Sunday school. You're teaching Sunday school for the first time. Now, that for many of us would be scary. Big step of faith. Then after a while, God blesses it. He gives you a little bit more insight how to do it. And you get better at preparing your studies and you know, all these things. You see the kids respond, you know, and, and you're loving them with Christ's love. But then after a while, you get good at it. And then you stop being dependent upon the Lord. You start going through the motions. It could happen with homeschooling. It could happen with being a father and leading your family spiritually. It could happen at your work, leading a Bible study or a lunchtime study or... Um, so many different things it could have. Any area of service we can be in, before you know it, self-dependence, a lack of dependence upon the Holy Spirit can come in, and our flesh is so good at going through the motions and being ritualistic. And no one can even know. That's the scary thing. People can think that you're doing great, and you're, you are serving in a way that was just like how you were serving when you first started, but Jesus knows, more importantly, that you're not. And, and, and it grieves him when we do that because he wants us to be full of life and being a, a vessel through whom he can live his life and bless people. So we have to be very careful. Experience can be dangerous to spirit-directed and spirit-empowered and life-filled ministry. We have to be very careful, and it's true for me. I can do a Bible study and not have my heart tuned into the Holy Spirit while I'm teaching it. I can go through the motions like anybody else. I have to guard against that. There's a reason why they chose those deacons so that they can commit themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So that they can stay connected to the Lord. And, and, and I don't mean in a relationship sense because we're saved. But 
I'm talking about in a life sense, in a ministry sense, and being completely yielded to him and letting him work through our lives in any given moment to where he can redirect us. Before you know it, there's no prayer, there's no being led by the Spirit, there's no listening to his voice. But the problem is, is that all through Jesus' life and ministry, we couldn't predict him, right? could we? Couldn't predict what he was going to do next. Even the disciples were thrown off when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes the second time, as if they never went through the, the, the feeding of the 5,000. You know, I mean, we, we would probably be the same way. He did things differently. He didn't do things the same. He didn't get in a rut. He didn't get inward. He didn't get, he wasn't consumed with his comfort. He wasn't focused on doing what he, just what he wanted to do. You know, it's interesting when we talk about allowing visitors to change us. Think about how often the Lord Jesus seemed to be led by the people he was serving. Like, they dictated things. They wanted him to do things. And he, you know, sometimes he didn't do it, of course. But so often he just kind of went with it. It looks like he just kind of, that's how we would describe it. He just kind of went with things. And, and I know that he was led by the Spirit. He said, you know, I always do those things which the Father leads me to do. And will please the Father in everything. So his, 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 he just did things differently. So the, what the disciples experienced when they were following him and when they were going, learning, and just like, we don't know what's going to happen. Can you imagine them talking to each other and saying, what's going to happen tomorrow? I can't believe today happened. I can't believe yesterday happened. Can you believe last Thursday? What's he going to do tomorrow? And, and, and it shouldn't be any different for his disciples today, and I don't believe it sh- he wants that. I, he, I think he wants us to be ready to be redirected and all of that, and our ministries can change. That's one of the signs of, of a church that's dying, that ministries never change. They just stay the same. There's never any, and I'm not talking about people per se, but I'm saying if you're in a ministry, things can change within that ministry. And, and, and we have to be okay with that because disciples move on, disciples come in, we have new things that we're starting, we have things that we've always done that he's leading us to do differently. And we're bringing those things before the leaders. We're praying about those things and, and not assuming that we should do something because we've always done it. That's the danger. Well, we've always done that. When you go to a church that's dying or on its way to death or on life support or dead already, it's like, no, we've always done it this way. And there's certain way, things that God can lead us to do a certain thing a certain way for a long time or maybe forever a certain thing. But most of the time he changes things up and he, and he redirects us and all of that. And we have to be okay with that. And we have to be flexible. Because one of the ways that he creates dependence in us is that he changes things up. And he moves in different ways. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be flexible. And it's not comfortable all the time. It's uncomfortable. It creates us more dependence upon him. And that's what he wants. And that's how growth comes. Second thing he says, and I want to link these together, strengthen and remember. When he says strengthen the things that remain and remember, therefore, how you have received. I want to cover those at the same time because they're really interconnected. There's some aspects of our lives and ministries that are not dead, but they're on their way. 
And God wants us to remember something. That's what he says there in verse 3. Remember. That means they once knew it. The church of Sardis once knew these things. Knew something. He says, remember therefore how. Notice that word how. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. And one of the main ways that I believe the church of Sardis or any church receives in the beginning or our personal lives when we first start serving people is we're dependent. We're dependent upon him. That's how Sardis Sardis started out, is dependent. Because you see through the scriptures the example, and we feel it ourselves, like, Lord, you have the wrong person. (laughs) I'm not qualified to do this. I'm way over my head. Usually we're way over our heads. And it creates that dependence on him. But again, again, as, as we get better or we get more experience, the temptation is to not be dependent on him anymore in the things that he has us still doing so that we're not, we can't allow him to change things within our ministry. We don't allow him to work through us differently or do things kind of in a different way. And, and we get really comfortable with our rituals. Let's be honest. We all have rituals. Most of you sit in the same place every week. That's okay. Not a criticism. Some of you don't. But we get very comfortable. We, I don't know if we park in the same places. We might. Depends on when we get here. But, I mean, we're very ritualistic. And that's the danger for fruitful ministry, is that we can get so, we can't allow any change, we can't allow any flexibility, and now God wants to work differently in my life, and, and we think something bad's happened to us, or he's punishing us, and it's not true. It's all good stuff. We'll get to more about that in in a moment. But he says, remember how you have seen and heard dependently. That's how we need to to remember that we were dependent. So maybe you're here today. You've you've gone a long ways the wrong direction with being dependent upon him. And he's saying, go back. Remember. Remember how you used to be? There's another church where he said, you know, do the former things. That's the what. So sometimes he tells us to go back and remember the specific things that we learned but here he's saying how you have received how you have received those things it's it's dependency dependently and next he says hold fast and repent repentance is first and that tells us that speaks to the fact that it's sin he's going to talk about garments in a minute and everything but he calls us to a life of faith Paul said that anything that's not of faith is sin. We have to completely depend upon him with our lives and, and let him live our lives and, uh, through us. And he knows that we're not going to be perfect. He knows that we're going to fail. He's gracious. He's gracious and patient. He understands. So it's, I, trust me, I understand all about failure with these things. So it's not a thing to beat yourself up. That's not the point here. The point is he wants you to repent and and say, I'm going to be dependent upon you again in these areas of service or in my life in this area or whatever it is. I've, you know, self-dependence has creeped in. So we have to do that. He wants us to be spirit-directed. Now he he ends with an encouraging word for those in Sardis who are not yet dead at all. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and will not blot out his name from the book of life. 
but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. There's always a remnant. There's always those that, I don't care if it's Israel, I don't care if it's the whatever church, you know, whatever geographical area where you think there's no believers there, there's believers there. Elijah fell into the trap of thinking he was the only one. Not true. There's more Christians in China than there is here. They're multiplying. Persecution does great things for the church. We don't need a, a friendly government to, to prosper. We, we, do, we need the American government to be a certain way for us to have the American dream. The American dream sometimes is the antithesis of what God's plan is for our particular lives. We won't see that in bookstores. We won't see that on Christian television, but it's true. When Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow him, it's dying to self. And he can give us the desires of our heart. He can give us dreams. He can originate those things in us. And, he'll, and then if he does those things, he's going to fulfill them or he wouldn't give them to us. But ultimately, we have to put our focus and, and, and be completely yielded to him. And so there's a few names in Sardis. Notice he says, even in Sardis. <laughs> Even, like, they had this name that they were alive and everything was great, lots of things going on and all of that. And he's saying it's so bad that I have to say even in Sardis. There's, there's a remnant that haven't defiled their garments. Talking about sin. And I believe it's primarily probably it's the sin of self-dependence and pride and all those things which cause us to not be dependent anymore. Or else they wouldn't have to remember how they received. But really, you know, it's an encouragement. This is an encouragement because there are people that still are being faithful. There's people that are still being led by the Spirit. They're still functioning in ministry dependently. If you're here today and none of these things apply to you at the moment, then be encouraged. God wants to encourage you greatly. But if it's, you're not in that situation, and there's different degrees in all of us, obviously. But I just want you to encourage you. If you're here, you're doing the best you can. You're trying to be led by the Spirit. You're trying to hear His voice. You're, you're trying to do everything that you do out of a, an overflow of your love for Him and your love for His people. Great. Thank you. He wants to encourage you with that. There's always people that are being the right way. And I believe in, I mean, there was some churches, two churches he couldn't say anything good about. But that doesn't mean there wasn't one single solitary soul in those churches that were not doing well. But notice the promise. He says, he says garments twice. Once in verse 4, not defiled their garments. That's talking about their, I believe, their practical holiness. And then he says in verse 5, he who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. Those are completely different garments, I believe. Those, that's our new body. That's because of our relationship with him and so being in heaven with him and 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 I love the fact that he says uh, you will look at verse four they shall walk with me where else does it say that in the scriptures we're going to walk with Jesus someday I think this probably is the only place that we're talking about in heaven where we're walking with Jesus he'll walk with me in white for they are worthy, and they're worthy because Jesus has made us worthy. It's beautiful. But when he says white garments, he's the only one that can give us truly white garments. And I believe he's talking about our, our again, our, our new body. So it's an encouragement to us. I'd like to close by having us turn to John chapter 15. 
John chapter 15. I want to begin reading in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, he, that, that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. What a perfect supporting passage for learning the lessons related to the church of Sardis. The real issue here is fruit. Was the church of Sardis bearing fruit? Well, I believe that it had fruit, but it wasn't real. <laughs> it was plat like plastic fruit. Remember plastic fruit? I remember as a kid, man, I think it was my aunt. Might have been my grandmother. But she had a bowl. Someone had a bowl of plastic fruit. And that stuff was disgusting. You know, it just was. To me, as a kid, I'm just a little kid, you know. And, and um, I mean, I was using the bananas as slingshot or uh, boomerangs. And I was doing all kinds. Leave the fruit alone. It's for looks. And that's exactly true. It's for looks. You can't eat it. It doesn't even look good when you get close to it. You get really close up to that fruit, it doesn't look good at all. And, and, and that's just how our fruit is. God inspects our fruit. He looks. He did with Sardis. It looks great on the outside from a distance, just like plastic fruit does. Everyone, that reputation, you guys are alive, all of those things. But Jesus has a closer look. He sees that it doesn't look good to him. And, it, and the most important thing, he can't enjoy it. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit related to our ministries is supremely for God to enjoy and also for other people to enjoy. It's not supremely for us. I've said this many times. Trees don't bear fruit for themselves. God set it up so that other people can enjoy that fruit. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, well, all that whole list is supremely for God to enjoy coming out of our lives and for other people to come up to us like we were a tree, you know, and and come up and enjoy those things from us. But we're so self-consumed, we think all that stuff's for us. And we get to enjoy it, but it's not supremely for us. It's supremely for others, and, and, and God especially. So they had plastic fruit. Jesus wants us to bear true fruit, and these verses that we read in John describe how that happens. That we yield ourselves to him. We abide in him, which means that we make our home in him. We depend upon him. How do you abide? How do you dwell? How do you, you know, rest in him? All those words that show us how that happens and how fruit gets produced through our lives. It all happens by dependence. We're dependent upon him. We're tapped into his life-giving strength and, and, and his life. And then he produces fruit, and it's effortless. We don't have to try to do it. It's not taped on fruit. It's real fruit that, that people can enjoy. That's what he wants. And that's what's available to us, because apart from him, we can do nothing. And maybe there's some of us that have, it's crept in over time. Maybe not completely. Maybe there's just in certain areas of our lives or ministries where we have become self-dependent in those areas. Now we're not going to God anymore. Not we're, we're not dependent upon him anymore to do the work through our lives. We're not, we haven't prayed. We've done the same thing for a long time. 
or, or maybe for a short time. And even in a short period of time, we've gone from being dependent on asking his strength and his power and hearing his voice through the whole thing as we're doing it and all those things, coming in prepared spiritually, all those things. We used to do that, but we don't anymore. And God's speaking to us and saying, you need to do that again. That's, that's remember how you have received. We need to pray. We need to be willing to be redirected. We need to be willing to have him change our approach. We need to listen to his voice. We need to be led by him. We need to walk in the supernatural. Walk in his power. When's the last time you asked to be refilled with the Holy Spirit? It's all through the book of Acts. The disciples asked to be refilled with the Spirit. Asked. And he did. Because they sensed that they didn't have the power to be a witness to him. And that's true for our lives as well. It could be in being a mom. It could be in being... A, a, a wife or a husband or a co-worker or a grandparent or a grandson. It could be in anything that we're doing to help people that there needs to be that supernatural power and virtue coming through our lives. You know, one of the things I did want to mention because there are lots of people with this gift in our church. They have the gift of helps. And many times, I just want to encourage you, if you have that gift, I don't. <laughs> I have the gift of non-help. Uh, making things worse so that the gift of help people can do a great job and have opportunities to serve. But if you have the gift of helps, don't think that that is not supposed to be a supernatural endeavor when you're functioning in that gift. And you may have done those types of things before you were saved or before you served or whatever, and you think because of that they're not supernatural. They are supernatural. Because there's a way that that gift looks when it's under the control of the Holy Spirit, that's different than whatever you experienced before. That where you're tuned into him and you're serving practically and doing skilled things with your hands and all of that, where now you're being led by him in how to do that. And I bet you there's a massive amount of believers in this world that have that gift that have never thought about prayer associated with using that gift and being directed by him. What about the things that he wants you to say to other people around you while you're using that gift? Maybe he's going to give you a way to use that gift in a way that you never even thought about. Spirit-directed in all the gifts of the Spirit. And sometimes the most practical, the ones that seem like they're the most practical, are the ones where people can be the least dependent and not realize that there's supernatural power available. And, and we need that. Do you think Jesus wants us to be serving with the gift of helps supernaturally in his power under the control of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. In every area, he wants us to do that. He wants us to walk in the gifts of the Spirit. He wants our lives to be marked by the supernatural. He wants us to be flexible and allow him to change things up. He wants him to be able to infuse our life with, in everything that we do. So we're not on autopilot. And we're not getting comfortable with just going through the motions. He, we, he wants his love and his leading and his life to be coming clearly through our lives and what we're in the middle of doing. No plastic fruit. Real fruit. That's from him. The world needs us to be walking in the supernatural. The world needs us to be walking in his power and his grace. They need an alive church, church. They need us. That's why the first thing that goes, or usually it's been gone a long time in a church that's dead, is prayer. Because the first thing that prayer does is acknowledges that I need someone other than myself. And the churches that have the most impactful prayer 
ministries and there's prayer going on all the time are the most fruitful. Think about it. In your experience, when you've seen fruitful ministries, how much was prayer a part of it? I mean, I didn't mean to start this thing Monday through Friday. That wasn't my idea. I was in a prayer meeting, and the Lord told me to do it. Okay. And I'm so thankful that he's led me to do it. It's been such an amazing blessing in so many ways. But we have to be tapped into him. We have to be full of life. We have to be outward, not inward supremely. We need to be doing things at a motivation of love. We need to be willing to let him change things up. We need to have him be free to do what he wants to do. And all of us in our individual lives and corporately, we're all at risk at any given time of preventing him from doing that. So he, wa- he warns us. The world really needs a church that's alive, that's being who the church is supposed to be, that's willing to be equipped to go out and preach the gospel, to bring people in, to help the needy and to serve the poor and to all those things. We're not going to do, do any of that if we're inflexible and rigid and inward focused and self-dependent. And he knows that. That's why he's, he's shaking us up. And I love it. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your life. That you're alive right now. And you live your life through us. You want to. Father, we repent of any self-dependence. We repent of any neglect. May we always help us, Lord. Remind us by your spirit. May we always be dependent upon you. And full of your life. And being an extension of you in this world. This lost, lost world, Lord. We thank you that you've made us to be salt and light multiply the little effort that we put forth for your glory. We thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen.